excites me. Well, we got a hot topic today that we're going to look at and deal with, and, and we've got a lot of scripture. So here's what you're going to find. Like many times when it comes to an issue like this, people will ask, why as a church are you dealing with, and why as a church are you addressing something that is a political issue? But what I'm proposing today is this, that yes, it's highly controversial in the political realm. But this is a topic that God has clearly spoken on. So how can we, as God's people, how can I, as a minister of the word of God, not address something that God has indeed spoken on and spoken on with clarity? And that's what we're going to see today. I have, look, I have no interest in the, um, the sensational clickbait videos that people will post just to try to drum up attention. And, you know, they say really bold things, which is great. Thank you for your boldness. But I almost get the idea that it's just, it, it's just that. It's clickbait. Right? They're just doing it for to be sensational and to draw attention. And that shouldn't be our motive. But yet, here's the issue that when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to sexuality, this is something that our culture is, is, is wanting answers to. This is something that you and I can't get away from. It is every day we are seeing things, we are hearing things, we are being bombarded with things and how can we not speak into this i mean it really is relentless teens are being told that it's totally normal to to ex, to, to explore your sexuality they're being told it's normal to question your gender i mean you can't even watch a popular tv series on netflix now with and maybe not the first season but man, the second season someone's going to come out as as homosexual someone's going to come out as bisexual there's going to be this agenda of of homosexuality and and of the transgender uh the transgender agenda that's going to be portrayed not only to us as adults but even to our kids the kids movies now where this is just becoming more and more normalized in the schools that that you maybe teach in or go to like there's the issue of of people wanting to be referred to by their preferred pronouns and, and and whether it's students or teachers and this is something that's not going away this is something that is 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 now in our culture that we are being Face with this is something that I don't think even the people that were sounding the alarms on this years ago I don't think they even realized how quickly that this was going to come about and it's something that is before us How about when it's your son or daughter? That starts questioning their gender How about when it's your grandchild? That comes to you and says I think that i'm gay or bisexual See, we as a church have to be the ones to address this. There are so many voices that are out there. There are so many people out there that are speaking. How can we be silent on this? 
But the reality is this, and, and it's ironic because the reason why a lot of churches and pastors aren't speaking out on this, there's two primary reasons. And this was a, a poll that George Barna did a few years ago. And, and he actually polled multiple different cr cross-denominational lines, different types of churches. And, 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 and Barna, they're very, um, very, very, they do good research, right? They're, they're very credible. And what they came away with was this, that the majority of pastors and churches that said, we think that, that God's word addresses these issues. We think these are, these are issues that are, are prevalent, people are wondering about and asking about. But the reason, the two primary reasons that pastors gave for not dealing with issues like what we're going to deal with today is they don't want to lose people and they don't want to lose donations. But wait a minute, isn't that selling out for popularity? I mean, if we really take that approach, aren't we more like Judas than Jesus? I mean, these are things, and once again, I have no, no, uh, no interest in dealing with political issues that we don't see in scripture. I have no interest with endorsing a candidate or, or making disparaging comments about another candidate. I have no, no desire for any of that. But when it comes to issues like this, that God has spoken on, how can we be silent? How can we be silent and literally let our kids hear everyone else's voices on this? Ironically, the churches now that are closing their doors, they're churches that have decided that we're not going to address these things. In fact, there are churches that have, in my opinion, caved to the pressure of culture on these issues. But ironically, those aren't the churches that are growing. Those are the churches, those are the denominations that are shutting their doors. And, and I say this and not in a disparaging way, but there's so many beautiful, ginormous buildings in the United States now that are sitting empty. People that have refused to be faithful to God's word. Because ultimately, here's the thing. I'm not God's editor. I'm God's messenger. And we have to be faithful to what God has spoken. What has God said on these issues? And by the way, don't we rise up in judgment when we look back in history? On people that have been silent? On issues like slavery. Issues like the injustice that happens in culture where people have just said, I'm going to be silent on it. And we rise up and say, how could you be silent on something that God's word was not silent on? So today, the purpose is not to be sensational, not to be theatrical, and definitely not to be angry or hateful. But to speak truth and to speak truth with a compassionate and love in our heart and to speak truth so that we will be able to have answers to those around us. Because here's the thing, the culture's fine with believe what you believe. Just keep it inside the four walls of church. Keep it in there and shut up about it and don't bring it out here. But the thing is, we're engaging with people in conversation out here. We are called to be missionaries to the people that God has put in our life and the path that God has, has, has called us to walk. And so these are issues that are going to come up. 
These are things that are going to come up, and we need to have a biblical answer. We need to have a loving answer and a compassionate answer. So let's dive into it. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our own image. This is reference to the Trinity. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and all the earth and every creeping thing that creepeth under the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And here's the thing. Jesus affirms these words in Matthew. In Matthew 19, Jesus says the same thing. And so sometimes there's controversy. Genesis is, believe it or not, a very controversial book. And, oh, you know, is this all allegorical? And is this even, even real history? Well, it sure seems like Jesus thought it was because Jesus affirmed this. Jesus affirmed in the beginning he created male and female. Not after, you know, millions of years that already took place and, and there was all kinds of other people that already inhabited the earth. And then he created, he just brought order to it and created Adam and Eve. No, Jesus was very clear that it was in the beginning that God created man and woman. He created male and female. And Jesus is being questioned. The Pharisees are trying to trick, trick him and trap him and, uh, on the issue of divorce. And basically Jesus says, look... Moses gave you this way out or this bill of divorcement. It was because of the hardness of your heart. That was the point Jesus was making. But Jesus affirmed what is marriage? What is God's creative order? He says, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he says, this is what marriage is. It's when a man will leave his father and mother and, they will, and he'll cleave to his wife and they will be one flesh. So Jesus affirms this in the creative order that God created male and female. This is God's creative order. And what I'm proposing is this, that there is not life. There is not flourishing. There is not true peace and joy when we rebel against how God created us. I love Psalm 139. This is powerful. Psalm 139, the psalmist says this. He says, For thou hast possessed my reins, and thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect or incomplete. And in thy book, all thy members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. Here the psalmist is attributing the fact that, look, God knew you before you were even born, that it was God that formed you, that God created you, and that we are fearfully, we are wonderfully made in God's image. That God's thoughts, Jesus, says, are marvelous. They are, they are wonderful. That God is the one that created you how he created you. And maybe today, honestly, you wrestle a lot, maybe not with this particular issue of gender identity, but you just wrestle with acceptance. 
you wrestle maybe with self-image. And, and you feel just like you don't fit in. You feel like you're an outcast. Maybe you feel like you're insecure or inadequate. But know this, that God created you unique. That in your DNA, it is unique of the some now close to 8 billion people in the world. That you and I are all made unique in the image of God. That God created us. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop feeling insecure and inadequate over things that you can't even control. Look, God made you the way that he made you. And the message that we need to be preaching and teaching, not just to ourselves, but to our kids, is this, that you, that you are made in God's image, that you are made unique, that God did not make a mistake in how he created you. That you are loved, you have meaning, you have value in your identity and the fact that you are an image bearer of God. God's the one who determines the, our gender at birth. And by the way, this is a biological fact. Biologically, God creates us as male and female. We have certain reproductive organs that are unique to either male or female. A female contains two X chromosomes and a male contains an X and a Y chromosome. Like this is just, these are biological facts. So here's the thing, this is going to come up, you know, and people like Dr. Drew tried to corner a pastor on his show. Uh, this has probably been six, seven years ago now and, and just grill him about, well, well, you know, you say that God created us, but you know, what do you do with people that are born with am ambiguous genitalia? Like, well, what about that? Did God do that? Like tried to corner him. And I love the, pa I love pastor White's response was like, well, we're in a fallen world, you know, and we need to love and have compassion on those very, very unique and rare situations and encourage those people, love those people. They need doctors and counselors and a lot of things to go into that and stand with them and love them and help them through that. But here's the thing. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about with gender dysphoria. This is the term, gender dysphoria. Honestly, until a few years ago, we probably, most of us probably didn't even know what this term was. But this is the sense of there's a mismatch between the body and mind. So how you were born biologically is not how in your mind you view yourself. There's that tension that takes place. That's called gender dysphoria. And what we're talking about here is those that are born biologically, clearly a certain gender that are wrestling in their mind because they say, my body says this, but my mind's telling me something different. Transgender is just an umbrella term for the many experiences of gender identity that don't align normatively with a person's biological sex. So the issue here, the controversy is where there's this battle in the mind going on. Well, I was born biologically a male or a female, but my mind's telling me something different. I just think and I just feel that, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm not the gender that biologically is telling me that I am. Well, here's the thing. The scripture talks not specifically about battling this issue, but it's interesting because Paul brings up in 
uh, Romans chapter 7, he talks about this internal battle going on. And he's talking about the flesh and the spirit, but he's talking about a battle in our mind and for our mind. In Romans uh, chapter number 7, verse 18, he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The good I would do I do not, the evil that I, I, I would not, that I do. It's like this battle's going on, man. What, what, what the things I want to do, my spirit wants to do, my flesh is fighting against, and vice versa. He says, now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. He said, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil's present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man or after the spirit. But I see another law in my members. Here it is, warring against the law of my mind. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God that through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Paul's talking about this internal struggle. And listen, because we're in a fallen world, because our own flesh, our own sinful flesh is at war with the spirit. And not only that, like, like uh, Joe talked about last week in the message on spiritual warfare, there is literally Satan and demons that are constantly bombarding us, that are constantly attacking us, that are constantly telling lies to us. And so what happens many times with this, with, with, with people that claim they're struggling or that not claim they are struggling with gender dysphoria is there's this internal battle and, and struggle. And we need to walk with those people and love those people. And here it is. We have to be truthful. We have to be truthful in telling them that they are not a mistake. That they are an image bearer of God. That God created them the way that God created them. And that they have meaning and purpose and value. Their identity doesn't come from what others think about them or say about them. See, this is something, this hits home to me of being a dad of five girls. I don't want my girls to, to base their value or their identity on what someone says or thinks about them. Or comparing themselves to someone else. And certainly not what a boy thinks about them. Their meaning and value and worth. Your meaning and value and worth. It comes from God. That God has created you unique. That God has created you in a way for his purpose. And ultimately for his glory. But the world says this. Listen to your mind and change your body. But God's word says... Listen to God and change your mind. Your body doesn't need to be transitioned. Your mind needs to be transformed. So if I could give the example of this. Let's just say this is hypothetical, but an 80-pound teenage girl goes into the doctor and she's struggling with, with anorexia. And she says, I just, I, I'm so overweight. I'm so overweight. That is my issue. That is my problem. You know what a good doctor is going to say? You need to, we need to help you. We need to walk with you. We need to get you good counseling. We need to get you good advice to where your mind and what you think and how you feel is actually going to line up with the reality. Not play in to this myth. Not 
play into her feelings and thoughts. You may have seen this video. Someone shared it with me this week. of The, the testimony of Chloe Cole. Chloe Cole. She was a, as a teenager. Went uh, through an irreversible surgery. To try to change her gender. She was struggling with it. And she went to her parents. Went to doctors. And she said this. After the surgery. As an adult. She said this. She said I needed therapy. To work through my issues. Not someone to affirm the delusion that transitioning would solve all my problems. She said this. She said it was actually after that surgery when she became suicidal. She said everybody was telling her parents, oh, if you don't, if you don't walk with her through this and allow her to make these changes, you know, then she's going to be suicidal. She said the, 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 the. The emotional terrorism that people would use. Well, it's better to have a living son than a dead daughter. That's the language that they use. She said, I actually became suicidal after. And not only that, but statistically speaking. And again, this sermon, I purposely wasn't trying to list a whole bunch of, of statistics. Our authority is not our human experience, but the word of God. But however, I don't think we should ignore the statistics that are out there. Studies show that 94% of kids that struggle with gender dysphoria grow out of it. So why as adults are we encouraging them to make life-altering decisions as a child? As adults, we are called to protect children. Satan and demons want to bring death. They want to bring destruction. They want you to question what God says. They want to question how God created you. But the thing is, believing what God says about you is what brings life and flourishing. We speak not out of hate, but out of love. We need to protect our children. And we need to approach this with compassion and gentleness, but also with truth. With truth. Because our kids are hearing a different message. In fact, some that really struggle with identity and struggle with, 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 with being accepted. Well, it doesn't take them long to scroll and find on, on, on TikTok someone that struggled with those same things. But then they decided to switch genders. And they decided to come out as homosexual or bisexual. And all of a sudden, that person now is accepted and applauded and praised. And these are lies that are being fed to our kids. And love, the loving thing to do is to speak truth. The loving thing to do is to walk with people through these things in a loving and a compassionate way. With discernment, with wisdom, but ultimately the truth of God's word. See, the reality is God does, God's word does indeed speak on these subjects. What about God's plan for sexuality? I don't know if now is a good time to tell you that this message is really, should have been two messages. But I'm combining it into one because we're starting Nehemiah next week. What does God say about sexuality? Well, God's plan for sex is between a man and a woman in marriage. This is the biblical teaching. This isn't hateful. This isn't bigoted. This is clearly what God's design is. God has clearly spoken on it. And we're going to look at a couple passages where God addresses the negative side of it and, and, and forbids 
homosexual relationships, but don't make the mistake of thinking that God's only speaking on sexuality in the negative sense. Every positive reference or every reference to marriage in scripture is talking about a man and a woman in marriage. This is God's plan. This is God's design. This is God's boundary. But here's the thing. The boundary is not to keep you from having fun. The boundary is not to keep you from something. It's actually to protect something holy and something sacred. The Bible says this, that, that sex and marriage is actually honorable. It's not just, yeah, it's okay to do. No, it's honorable. God created it. God's the creator, and he created it for our pleasure and joy. And all married couples, hopefully in your mind, you're thinking, amen, right? Nothing wrong with that. God created it. Don't let Satan hijack it. Don't let this world hijack it. Paul in 1 Corinthians, I mean, he's addressing all kinds of sexual sins. But you know what Paul also talks about in Corinthians? He talks about as married couples, not only is it okay to partake in sex, he says it's actually something that you shouldn't withhold from one another. So you withhold from one, that's going to cause a lot of issues and problems. He's saying, look, this is something God created. This is God's plan that God's the one that created this. But Satan's always trying to bring a counterfeit. Satan's always trying to make what God said as something that seems, oh, this is God's keeping you from something. This is his tactic all the way back in Genesis. Oh, the reason why God's not allowing you to step outside this boundary is because, you know what? God's withholding something good from you. This is Satan's lie. But the reality is this, that no, God is protecting, is protecting this because it's something, it's something that is sacred. It's something that God created with his purpose and glory in mind. So, we got to deal with this. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Once again, don't make the mistake of only going to the five or six passages that, where God condemns it. And God says, don't do it. Look at every positive reference to marriage. It's always between a man and a woman. Well, let's look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So here Paul's laying out the argument, laying out really he's getting to the gospel uh, in Romans, which is beautiful about Jesus and his saving grace that is through faith in him and him alone that we're saved. But first he's addressing and showing that the world is guilty before a holy God. That's what he's doing here. He says that because... That they which may be known of God is manifest in them. God showed it to them. 20, verse 20 talks about the invisible things of creation. Um, or the invisible things of him from creation of the world is clearly seen. He's saying, look, people are without excuse or without a defense. Because God has clearly revealed truth. He says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. But became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to became, become, or professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made to corruptible men. 
Verse 24, he says, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. He says, for this cause, gave, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. So Paul's talking about the creative order of God. And he's saying, look, that man in our sin has rebelled against God, has rebelled against God's creative order. And in these lists of sins here, Paul is addressing homosexuality. Now, some would, would, would try to point out, and they really got a stretch to do this. And, and they'll say, well, look, Romans 1 this is all in the context of idol worship. Paul's not talking about, you know, a committed, monogamous, homosexual relationship. Oh, no, this is all, you know, this is, is where, where, where someone's forcing a slave to do something they don't want to do. And, and this, is, this is what's taking place. And this is all in the context of worshiping idols. But, you know, there's a lot of other sins that Paul's going to list here. Fornication and murder and deceit, and lying, and pride. So are we really saying that, well, those things are only sin in the context of idol worship? Well, certainly not. That doesn't even make logical sense. And not only that, this is really, really clear. That this isn't some situation where someone's forcing someone to do something against their will. Which, by the way, that is extremely evil. No question about it. It's evil. In fact, in God's law in the Old Testament, it was a death penalty for rape. That's how important that this is to God. This is how much God wants to protect people and protect life. But here it's clear. He's saying they burned in their lust one toward another. This isn't a situation where someone's being forced to do something that they don't want to do. Let's look at 1 Timothy First Timothy chapter number one, Paul is walking through, Paul is walking through in first Timothy one, really God's law and how God's law is good. God's law is, is, is right. Now don't use it unlawfully. And he's probably addressing the people that were trying to add things to the finished work of Christ saying, you got to keep the law in order to be justified. He's saying, no, no, no. The law is to show us we need a savior. The law is to show us we have broken it. But Paul's saying, look, the law is good. And what Paul is actually doing here is walking through the Ten Commandments. Everything that he's going to address covers the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, yes, God's law is good. In verse number eight, he says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane and murderers and murders of fathers and mothers. And so he's saying, look, the law was given to restrain evil. The law was given for the people that are out there trying to break it. Now, we got some teachers in here. You understand this principle. The rules that you have are are for the people that you know are just looking to get around them and break them. That's how our society works, right? The vast majority of our laws, you know why they're there? Not for the law, the honest law-abiding citizens, 
It's for these clowns that are trying to get around the law and break the law and do evil, right? And that's this, this statistic. You'll appreciate this. This statistic was recently our, our mayor and our police chief gave. Uh, my wife was at a, a work luncheon and, and the, the, the chief of police and mayor were there trying to convince people to, you know, go ahead and move into certain neighborhoods in Davenport. And you know, I don't know if they themselves are willing to move there, but they like, go ahead and move here. It's safe and good. But their point was, look, hey, here's the problem in, in Davenport. 0.19% of the population commit more than 50% of the crimes. Now, I don't think this is even unique to just Davenport, right? This is probably, this statistic, my guess would be, it's pretty accurate. Well, this is what Paul's saying. Look, you know why there's the law? It's for that 0.19% of people that are troublemakers. It's for the evil people out there. The law is good. One of the things the law does is, well, ultimately, it shows all of us we need a savior, Amen. But the law is to restrain evil doers. That's part of the purpose of the law. And Paul's pointing this out. And he says, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. Then he talks about kidnapping and liars and perjurer. He says, like, look, that, that these things are breaking God's law. It's interesting where he uses the word whoremonger. The Greek word is pornia, pornia which is really a, uh, a general term for any kind of sexual sin. Paul says that's against God's law. Sex, sex outside of a, a, a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, he's like, that's breaking God's law. But then he even gets more specific. He says, for them that defile themselves with mankind. So the Greek word here, look, I hope you don't feel like I'm just trying to talk over your heads here, but you have to know this word. If you want to open your mouth ever and, and, and be able to engage people, not in an angry debate, but just in a, engage them in a conversation and be able to give a defense for the erroneous allegations that, you know, this word's been mistranslated and it's not what it really means. And Christians for 2000 years have gotten it wrong. If you want to be able to open your mouth and give a defense for that, we have to understand these things and know these things. And the word is arsen akoites. Arsenokoitos. I don't even know I'm pronouncing it right. Am I pronouncing it right? Where's Pastor Howard? Close. Close enough. Arsenokoitos. This is the word that Paul uses. So here's the allegation, and here's why this word is important. This word is used, arsenokoitos, this is used in 1 Timothy. It's used one other place in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's using it. And the allegation is this. You guys are absolutely just mistranslating this word, arsenokoitos, Paul just made this word up. This word, you don't see anybody using it before Paul. But here's the question. Where did Paul get this word? Where did Paul get this word, arsenokoitos? Well, Paul actually got it from the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, and in Paul... Of course, Paul spoke Hebrew, but in Paul's day here, probably a lot of the people that he would have been speaking to, they spoke Greek. And so Paul was referencing something called the Greek, Greek Septuagint. You've heard me make reference to that, and, and that's not, you're aware of the Greek Septuagint was just simply the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so Paul is taking, really he's taking two words and combining it into one. Arsenos means male, and, and koiteos, or, or koiteo, means men doing what they do with men in bed. 
And I'm sorry, this is blunt and, and there's some little ears, but listen, we have to address these things. We have to deal with these issues. This is clearly what it's talking about in Leviticus 18 spells that out. What Paul is doing is he's taking those two words, combining them into one word. Paul is being extremely specific. That, hey, God's law is good. And God's moral law is good. And this is what that means. So then the pushback is Leviticus. Of course, you guys would go to Leviticus. You know, Leviticus, that outdated Old Testament book that you Christians don't even follow. That's, that, that's the allegation. And my question is, do you, what would your response be to that? How would you respond to that when someone grills you and someone asks you, why do you follow Leviticus when it talks about homosexuality? Why do you pick and say that's evil and that's bad? But why do you ignore the other laws in Leviticus? Why do you eat shellfish? And why do every one of us probably in here, we're wearing clothing with mixed fabric? How come you don't follow that law? How come you, here it is, you pick and choose what you want to follow? And here's the thing I will admit, we absolutely pick and choose. Absolutely. But we pick and choose because we take the context of Scripture seriously. Right? There are certain laws, no question about it, that God gave specifically to the nation of Israel. That they were to follow certain dietary laws and certain ceremonial laws. Those were unique to Israel. No debate, no question about it. And the reason I don't follow those is because I'm not living in ancient Israel and that command wasn't specifically given to me. But then why do we follow this one? Why do we pick and choose this one? Well, once again, you look at the context. And in the context of Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, God is telling Israel, hey, don't do what the wicked nations around you were doing. In fact, he says this, God destroyed those other nations around them because they were partaking in that sin. The context is not just for Israel. This is God's moral law that crosses all boundaries. And what Paul is doing, I think, in a very clear way, pointing out that, look, God's law is good and God's law is holy. God's boundaries are good. And he says this is crossing God's boundaries. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I know we're out of time. But I'll continue to ignore the clock. Let's look at 1 Corinthians First Corinthians chapter six, Paul is listing all of these sins and he's saying, no, not know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or here it is abusers of themselves with mankind. That's arsenikoitos, this Greek word that means men who are practicing homosexuality and people, oh man, some of the, some of the modern translations that put in homosexuality or men practicing homosexuality. See, they just try to twist it. No, they don't. That is literally what that word means. There's no dispute. There's no debate about it. Paul is being very clear. He's saying, look, people that are practicing this lifestyle, nor thieves or covetous or drunkards or 
revilers or extortioners. He's like, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's not saying anybody that ever commits one of these sins isn't going to heaven. Well, no, that would be all of us, right? None of us would make it. We've all, one of the sins on this list that he's doing, we've committed. But he's saying people that practice this, people that live this lifestyle is evident that they have not been regenerated, that they have not been saved because they're continuing down that pattern of sin. He uses that term arsenokoitos again. But he doesn't stop there. And we're not going to stop there. Because he says this, such were some of you. Now a lot of people want to change the tense of that verb. Say such are some of you. But there is not one Greek manuscript anywhere in the world that reads that. But they all read such were some of you. But Paul says, look, that's, that's who you were. That's no longer your identity. He says, now you're washed. And now you're sanctified. And now you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. See, the reality is this, that, that, God, that all of us have broken God's law. Maybe you're in here today and honestly, like you're here and you're struggling with sexual sin. Maybe you're struggling even with your identity. Maybe you're really battling that. And I want to be really, really clear. Like we're glad you're here. You are loved. You are welcome. You have meaning. You have value. And I truly mean that. But love says this. Love says don't continue down that path. That God has a better path for you. Paul says, look, this is what some of you were, but now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're justified. That no matter what sin you have committed, no matter what sin you are currently committing and struggling with, there is hope in Jesus Christ. That there is redemption in Christ. That the message, of the glorious message of the gospel is not continue in your sin, you're fine. The glorious message of the gospel is that every one of us have broken God's law and we deserve God's wrath and condemnation. But Jesus Christ came and he lived a righteous life. He died to redeem us from these sins. He died to save us of these sins. He paid the price and the penalty for our sin. That we can have faith in him. That we can trust in him. And when we trust in him as Savior, what happens is he gives us a new heart and new desires. What happens is that we're not, we're not jumping into sin and celebrating sin and celebrating things that God says is harmful and destructive. We're repenting of those things. We're repenting of those things. I love how Dr. Michael Brown puts it on this issue. He says we need to reach out to people with compassion but we need to resist the agenda with courage. Isn't that good? Reach out with compassion, but resist the agenda with courage. See, there is hope in Christ for you, for me, for all who will come to faith in Christ. And I truly mean this. Maybe for you, you're, you're truly struggling with maybe the sin of homosexuality. Maybe you're struggling with, maybe it's not that particular sin, but it's some sexual sin that you just feel enslaved to and entrapped in. The power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit can set you free from that. 
That is what the gospel does. That is what the Holy Spirit of God does. Maybe you're here and you're overwhelmed with shame or guilt because of your past or because of what you're struggling with now. Once again, you're loved. We are glad that you're here. And we love you and care for you. And we want to see you have freedom from that sin. Not freedom to continue in that sin, but freedom from that sin. Because ultimately, here's the thing, God has spoken on the issue and God has spoken with clarity. And because of that, as God's people, the question is, are we going to believe God's word? Do we believe that God's law, God's word brings life and brings flourishing? And if we truly believe that, we're going to be bold, but also compassionate and loving, realizing that, look, God's ways are best. And that encouraging someone to go down a path of destruction is not love. That love is telling people, look, God has a better way. That God has a plan. God created you for something better than, than what the path that you're going down. That God can and will save you if you will come to him. We're going to pray. I know you've got a lot of questions on this issue. Please submit whatever questions. A lot of this was just a kind of a fly over. Uh, here's, a, uh, here's just just really some of the highlights of, of the subjects. I know you're going to have a lot of questions. We'll do a follow-up message. Please submit those questions. Maybe it's objections that you've heard. Maybe you want us to really dive in deeper to arsenokoitos, and you've heard objections that you're not really sure how to overcome. Look, this battle is here, that we're in it. We need to be engaged in it. We need to be engaged in it, not to try to win arguments, but ultimately because we want to share the gospel with those around us. And by the way, if we engage in this conversation with people and our goal is anything other than to run to the gospel and be able to give people the gospel as we are, as we're overcoming some of these objections, I think we're doing it wrong. I think we're doing it wrong. Our goal should be that we want to give people the truth of God's word and that we're praying that the spirit of God will open the eyes of those that are in bondage to sin, just like he did for every one of us who are saved, who are now a child of God. Maybe you're a Christian and you're still struggling with some of these issues. Look, you're still battling the flesh. We're still in this fallen world. You don't need to be ashamed and keep those things hidden. When it comes to any sin, and particularly sexual sin, one of the greatest dangers is thinking that I'm just keeping this private. Now, I'm not saying you broadcast it to everyone, but people, you need that people that you know and trust, godly people that you can pray with, that can walk with you, that can help you get victory no matter what the sin is. Let's pray.